Romans 7. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives? For example, by law a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man, while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new ways of the Spirit, and not in the old ways of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, Do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Once I was alive, apart from law, but when the commandment came, spit that. Sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought, brought death for sin. Seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me and through the commandment puts, put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced, produced, uh, produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, to, but what I, hate I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out, for what I do is not the good I want to do, no. The evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man am I, I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself, in my mind, am I 
am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Thank you, Wynne. Reading a whole chapter, well done. Now kids ask them all the time. Sometimes they're simple ones and small ones. Sometimes they're more complex. Simple questions like, what are we having for dinner? Can I have some more screen time? Do you know where my shoes are? And then there are bigger and more complex questions like, where do babies come from? What happened to Grandad when he died? Questions, they surround us everywhere in all walks of life, in all ages and stages. Sometimes we give questions and sometimes we get an answer that prompts yet another question. And often the question that is prompted is why? Years ago the Times newspaper sent out an inquiry to a lot of famous authors asking them a very challenging and complex question. The question was, what's wrong with the world today? G.K. Chesterton responded with a very short and simple answer. His response was, Dear Sir, I am. Now Chesterton is argued by some as being one of the greatest thinkers and writers of the 20th century. So why would he state that what is wrong with the world is himself? Well, in Romans 7, Paul is doing something quite similar in relation to himself in his discussion about the law and sin. In the first six verses, Paul gives us an answer to a question that he posed actually in chapter 6. The question in chapter 6 was, does the gospel leave you free to live in any way that you choose? His answer is no. And he goes on to explain that you can either be married to the law or married to Christ. When we become believers, Christians... We die to our old husband, the law, which was a threatening master over us and we marry a new husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the perfect leader. Our first point this morning is as believers we die to the law. Now Paul has spent much of his letter to the Romans here pointing out from chapter 3 to chapter 5 unfolding a way of getting right with God. It's not some moral improvement program, nor is it rule-keeping or more dis, uh, um, disciplined living. Is it, it's not being a, a nicer person or getting our relationships fixed with each other or finding out how to succeed. It's something utterly and vastly different, something utterly and vastly better from all of that. It's justification through faith. And we unpacked this together a few weeks ago when we were in Romans 5. Justification means our declared righteousness before God made possible by Christ's death and resurrection for us. Being counted righteous before God through faith. You'll remember we talked about being justified as being made positionally right with God and having peace with God. Paul now transitions into speaking about how the, how the law relates to this new position and this relationship with God through chapter 6 and chapter 7. This is where we find ourselves to get today in chapter 7. It's important for us to remember that Paul 
was a Pharisee. He was well and truly married to the law in the sense of his commitment and his dedication to it. Now, Pharisees thought of sins only as terms, in terms of external actions. So as long as you kept the law, as long as you did the things that you needed to do, as long as you didn't perform any of those external actions, those sinful behaviours that were against the law, then you weren't guilty and you were in a position of being able to look down upon others. Now, you can work your way through the Ten Commandments as a list of behaviours and you can tick them off. I haven't worshipped any idols, tick. Yes, I keep the Sabbath, tick. Working my way down the list, um, I haven't killed anyone, no, tick. Uh, Stolen anything, no, tick. Adultery, tick, no issue there. We can interpret the law as a list of behavioural rules. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, many of us have done this in our minds before. If these commands are used simply as a checklist to try and compare ourselves to and compare to others, we will still find ourselves wanting. We will find ourselves in a cycle of trying to be perfect in our own right, which we can't be. And if we are honest with ourselves, we'll find we actually don't tick all the boxes. So what is Paul saying here about the law? Paul is saying that the God-given commandments are something that we die to. Why would he be saying this? Isn't the law good? Now Paul poses this question in verse 7. Is the law sinful? His short answer is certainly not. He then has a longer answer, which is a bit of a pattern that Paul has. That longer answer helps us to expose more of why we actually have the law. What is its purpose? And that's what we're going after this morning. What's the point of the law? We've talked about believers needing to die to the law. But our second point here is that the law actually exposes sin and it excites it. In Australia in 1945, did you know that 70% of men smoked? In the 1960s, more information about the effects of smoking came to light. This culminated in 1967 with the health consequences of smoking, a public health service review being released by the US Surgeon General. If you look at the data from 1960 to 1980, there's a 60% decrease in the number of people who were smoking. This is before the cost increase strategy came into play in the early 90s. In Australia in 1945, 70% of men smoked. In 2015, this had dropped to only 14%. When smoking was exposed as being bad for your health, people started to stop. They gained knowledge and understanding that they didn't have before. For many, this knowledge was applied and the percentages of people who smoked started to decrease drastically. Smoking became more socially isolated and while many people stopped, others didn't and others started. It was in the mid-90s when I started to smoke. There was plenty of knowledge available about the effects of smoking for me at that stage but it was the perception that it had amongst my peers that excited it. It excited me. It was something that I knew was wrong. 
You see, it doesn't take long when we reflect on history or even familiar ourselves with plots of very successful films and TVs or novels that if something is forbidden, it adds an air of excitement. You see, just knowing that something is wrong doesn't mean that you stop doing it. It's kind of like this with God's law and sin. It is when people know the law, the standard that God has set, that they can see that their actions are sinful. It's not that those that don't know the law don't sin, but that they don't see it necessarily as sin. You see, the law turns the seemingly hidden rebellion, the disobedience towards God, it brings it into the light. It exposes it. The law exposes sin. But not only does it expose it, it also excites it. The rebellion and selfishness of the human heart intensifies and expands when it meets the law. In verse 5 we see, While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. The sinful inclinations of the heart are not just exposed by the law, they're excited by the law. Why, I hear you ask, why? Well, here's why. Because apart from the Holy Spirit, our hearts are utterly self-centred. And when such a heart sees that it's been called into question by the authority of the law, it seeks to defend itself. Paul demonstrates this process himself for us from verse 7. I would not have known what sin was if it had not been for the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said so. You shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. Paul is saying that without the standard being outlined for him, he would have not have known that coveting was a sin. The law exposed it. But then it produced every kind of coveting in him. It excited it. It appears that coveting is what brought Paul unstuck. As a Pharisee, Paul had worked very hard working his way through the law, through those behaviours, ticking them off. He'd not understood the law as a matter of inward desires, but as a list of outward behaviours violating those rules. Coveting clearly has everything to do with inward desires and attitudes. But we know that it's not just coveting when we think of the law. Jesus' own teaching in Matthew 5 shows us that all commandments refer not only to behaviours but to inward attitudes and motives behind them. Returning once more to the rebellious, utterly self-centred heart So friends, we've seen as believers we need to die to the law and we see here that the law exposes sin and it excites it. The third point here that Paul is making is that the flaw is actually not with the law. Paul's saying that the flaw was not the law, the flaw was in Paul, the sinner. While externally he could be very good in upholding the law, internally he could not be anything other than a sinner. Now, I don't know about you, but I love the idea of a Big Mac meal. 
supersized. You know, two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. You know, that big container of thinly sliced, deep-fried potatoes, French fries, half a litre of sugar-filled drink. It just looks so amazing on the posters, doesn't it? The light brown shimmering buns, the crispness of the lettuce, the perfectly melted cheese. You look at the picture and you just drool. And time after time I'd get myself that meal, I'd eat it, I'd enjoy it and then I'd regret it. (laughs) Now some of you may not agree with me with this statement but I think that the Big Mac meal is intrinsically bad. And yet I'm drawn to it. As Paul goes on, he explains that he is intrinsically bad, fleshy, selfish, unspiritual. But the law is not. The law is intrinsically good. It is holy, it is righteous, it is spiritual. In verse 14, Paul outlines what, what he is, that he is intrinsically, sorry, what he is intrinsically like. And he contrasts it to the law and what the law is intrinsically like. We know that the law is spiritual, verse 14, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I do I do not want to do, but, I, but what I do I hate. It's a bit of a tongue twister, isn't it? Paul lays before us here a struggle. But he doesn't point the finger at just anyone. He points the finger at himself. Now this can initially be a little bit confusing. Isn't this Paul? Isn't Paul like some super Christian? Isn't he a hero of the Bible like those classic Old Testament heroes? Well, yes and no. Yes, in the sense that Paul is like those classic heroes in the Old Testament. Uh, but, and But no, in the sense that he is intrinsically bad just like those heroes. The law exposed their sin and his sin. Paul and all of the characters of Scripture are not the hero. There is only one who is the true hero. You see, the problem of a Christian is that he has within him two natures each drawing him or her in a different direction. The sin nature Paul calls the flesh here in Romans 7, he refers to as the old man in Romans 6. This nature is opposed to the new man, the new creation in Christ. We know that through justification, the old self, the flesh, has been made positionally right, been put to death in Christ, Justified, positionally right with God, peace with God. But sin is very much knocking at the door, prompting the Christian, the believer, continually to sin. The conflict is in the Christian. It's a resulting dilemma of the Christian life. We find ourselves torn in opposite directions. In every decision, there are two opposing choices, two desires. Being a Christian is a virtual battleground where two opposing forces wage war of life and death 
in a struggle. The inner man, the sinful man, or the new creations. We find ourselves utterly frustrated from time to time. Paul outlines his own struggle here for us. One where he knows what he should do and doesn't do it. A struggle which gives us a real life personal example of the points that we've unpacked so far. These are examples that I'm sure we can relate to. This struggle seems to be building, there seems to be no obvious solution. It breaches the point in verse 24, what a wretched man am I. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Well, we spoke of a hero and enter the true hero of the story, Jesus Christ. We know that Christ alone not only ticks every single box of the law, but outwardly and inwardly, he is the fulfilment of the law. Verse 25, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. God delivers Paul through Jesus Christ. He delivers all believers who he has called through Jesus Christ. In Romans 8, Paul expands on this more. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned the sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. It's only through Jesus that we can be justified, declared righteous before God and Jesus has given us the spirit who works in us, gradually growing us and changing us in righteousness. But you'll need to read on in chapter 8 to unpack more of this sanctification. I strongly encourage you to do that as it unpacks the realities of the Spirit's sanctifying work in us. So what is the point of the law then, friends? Well, the purpose of the law is that we know the holy nature and will of God, the sinful nature of our disobedient hearts and the fact that we need a saviour. As believers we need to die to the law because we're not under that law, we're under Christ. The knowledge of the law exposes sin in us which is excited and we need to be watchful and ready to ask for the Spirit's help as we struggle through life here in all that we face. We need to know that it's not the law that is the flaw, but it is the sinful nature that is in us. But we don't have to stop there, because if we are believers, we are forgiven and we are justified and we have the help of the Spirit Friends, if we don't understand why the law was given, we can kill ourselves with it. Paul states in Romans 9 that the reason Israel stumbled into destruction was not that they didn't pursue the law, but was because they pursued it from the wrong way, 
from works and not from faith, in an effort of the flesh instead of in the power of the Spirit. So as you reflect this morning, are you pursuing the law from the wrong direction, from works? Are you trying to earn your righteousness by being good enough, by ticking the boxes through the effort of your flesh? You'll fail. You can't do it. Don't beat yourself up in the process. You need to make sure that you come to the cross. Seek forgiveness. Be made right with God and ask for the Spirit's help as you walk through this life. Just like G.K. Chesterton was able to respond to the question, what's wrong with the world today, I am, we need to acknowledge that we are the floor, that we are sinful and disobedient and that God is holy and the only way that we can come to him is through faith in Jesus Christ and then we can live forgiven in the power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, We will struggle, but we are victorious through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you that we could be here this morning to be reminded of the truth that is in your word. Father, we know that your standard is perfect and that we don't reach it in and of ourselves. But Father, we thank you that through the gift of your Son, if we are called and we respond by faith, we are made righteous in your eyes through Christ's righteousness. And we thank you that you give us your Spirit to guide and lead us and sanctify us while we are here waiting for Christ's return again to be with him forever together in the new heaven and the new earth. Encourage us this morning in our struggles. Help us to not be discouraged. In Jesus' precious name, amen.